All right, I gotta think of which chord goes where. Remember the old days, we didn't have to do this. All right, but my parents are watching at home, and I want them to hear me, and a lot of other folks too. Good morning. I don't know about you, but I want to be a real boy. That is one of the most famous lines from Disney's 1940 Pinocchio. And recently I've read quite a bit of Jordan Peterson and I've watched some of his YouTube videos. And he talks a lot about Pinocchio in an interesting and profound way. And I realized that I had never seen that movie straight through. And so I took the opportunity to go watch it. And some people in my family watched it twice. But most of us know the story. Geppetto is a, uh, seems to be an older, lonely man who is a, a wood worker, and he has all sorts of, of clocks and all sorts of things that he makes. And one day, he makes a puppet, and his name is Pinocchio. And Geppetto does something that's pretty profound. He looks into the cosmos. He looks into eternity, and he wills his puppet creation into being. Now, as Christians, we know that God looks down from eternity and down from the cosmos and breathed us into being. And this, this wooden puppet comes to life, but it's not fully human yet. It has human attributes, but he's still made of wood. And so one of his first lines is, I want to be a real boy. And at first that could seem a little flippant and maybe a little immature, but if you apply the, word, the Hebrew word shalom to this thought, it's actually quite profound. So Doug Hershey writes that shalom is taken from the root word shalom, which means to be safe in mind, body, or estate. It speaks of completeness, fullness, or a type of wholeness that encourages you to give back, to generously repay something in some way. And so a lot of times, I think a shalom is just being peace, but it's so much more than that. It's being completely whole. It's being what you are supposed to be, so much so that you have something to give to others. It's a beautiful word, and when Pinocchio comes to life, what I hear him saying is, I want shalom. I want to be completely human. I, I want to live and love and act like an ideal human would. And so, like Pinocchio, we all ha have to step into completeness of, of shalom. Even Christ did this in some way, because the Gospel of Luke tells us that uh, when Jesus was born, as he uh, matured, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. And so, even Jesus goes through this, this maturation process and Jesus is the ideal human. And so if he grows and matures and establishes more shalom, more wholeness, completeness, then so should we. And so Pinocchio gets a visit from this blue fairy. And she tells him three things. She says, okay, if you want to be a real boy, if you want shalom, if you want to know what it, what it is to be a human in this world, then you need to be brave and truthful, and unselfish. And then, it really doesn't seem that fair, because then Pinocchio, who literally is made of wood, is just kind of shipped out into the world and says, okay, so we told you three things, and now go to school and go figure this out. 
And because Pinocchio is basically the human condition in the story, because he basically is you and I, he fails almost immediately. And so he goes off into the world, and he is seduced by fame and false promises and the desire to please people around him, and he gives into pleasure and he gives into leisure, and he just kind of makes a mess of things. And as he does this, his physical appearance begins to change. It becomes grotesque. And so everybody knows the most famous thing. If you've never even seen the movie or read the fairy tale, we all know that when Pinocchio begins to lie, what's the first thing to happen? His nose grows, right? And so he physically begins to alter as, as he fails. And so the blue fairy comes back and says, okay, I'll give you a restart on the nose, but you really need to do right. And so he's like, I'm going to do it. And then he goes off into the world, and he fails again, and this time he's seduced by the promise of pleasure. And so he goes off to Pleasure Island, and they promise that it's going to be fantastic and fun and leisure and, and all of these things. And he gets there, and all the boys there start turning into literal bang donkeys. And so he starts to grow ears, he starts to grow a tail, and by this point, his conscience, Jiminy Cricket, gets him out of there, but he's still stuck with the ear and, and the tails. And so this whole time, as he's failing, he's being used. And I think there's a lesson there. Evil wants to consume you. It wants to make you less than human. It wants your shalom and, and the uh, imago deo, the uh, image of God that God gave you as a gift. Evil wants to corrupt that. Satan hates God. And when he attacks your image, he is attacking God. And so you see this played out in Pinocchio's physical appearance. So instead of ascending into Shalom, he descends. He's becoming more of a beast than a man. And so his literal strings have been cut, but he's still a puppet. He's still controlled by, by the evil forces of this world that are all around him. And so he gets back from Pleasure Island, and he's, he's got the donkey ears, he's got the tail, and he comes back, and he finds out that his father, Geppetto, found out that he went to Pleasure Island, and so Geppetto boards a ship and goes to save his wayward lost son. And wouldn't you know, a giant well named Monstro swallows up the entire ship Geppetto is on. And Pinocchio finds out about this, and so now we need to, it, to introduce the concept of the seas, of the ocean, of the deep. And so in the Hebrew mind, seas represent chaos. They represent the unknown. They represent a place of fear. You can go back to Genesis 1, before God ordered the earth. Um, it says his spirit hovered over the deep. And so in this formless earth, it's kind of a void um, the waters were kind of represented as like, this hasn't been um, ordered yet. It's, it's, it's the place where Leviathan is at. In the Hebrew mind, this is a place of chaos. Well, Pinocchio's entire life has only been chaos. But now he has a mission. And his mission is to save the father that he forsook. And what I like about this is, I don't think Pinocchio was thinking, well, this is really going to build a lot of character. He is doing this because finally he's being unselfish. He's trying to right a wrong. He's trying to 
participate in the rescue of somebody that he loves. And so, once he enters the chaos of the sea, he has to face evil. And this evil is epitomized by this well whose name is Monstro. And you know that he's evil, and you know that he's scary, and you know that he's bad because every time he comes up to a creature of the sea and says, where is Monstro? They get scared and flee. And so they're all running from evil, but Pinocchio is headed towards it to go and to confront it. And so he finally gets there, and the well swallows him up, and he finds Geppetto alive on this little wooden boat. And by alive, I mean he's barely alive. He literally is starving to death inside this belly of this well. And he can occasionally, when the well feeds, Geppetto can pull out a couple of fish. It's just kind of scraps. And he's barely getting by. And I think that there's a lesson there. I think that when evil has us, it doesn't want to kill us immediately. It wants to be a parasite. It, it, it wants to barely keep us alive. And that's the state Geppetto is in. And Pinocchio isn't there for very long until he says, Dad, I know a way out. We've got to make this well sneeze. And the way to get him to sneeze is we have to burn this place down. And he immediately starts building a fire. And at first you're like, okay, that's kind of practical. But then you think, well, Pinocchio, what if it doesn't work? And now you don't even have this rickety wooden ship to live in because if you build a fire and it gets out of hand, the boat that you're standing on is going to burn down. And then it gets even more um, risky when you realize that earlier in the movie, they're lighting a candle and Pinocchio starts playing with the fire and guys, he's a wooden puppet. He can burn. His finger catches a blaze. So his solution puts everything at risk. But even a puppet knows starving to death in a prison is no life at all. That he'd rather take the chance and burn it down. And so he starts building this fire in, in this courageous act. He's being brave. Okay? And sure enough, Monster of the Well uh, 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 and sneezes. And man and boy both go back out into the chaos of the sea. But evil doesn't idly just sit by as we walk out of its clutches. And so the well pursues him and swallows him up a second time and takes him into his mouth. And then a second time, ah, ah, two! And he spits him out a second time. And you can, even in the cartoon, 1940s Disney animation, you can just sense the tension and the fight and the struggle saying, I'm not going to live like this. I'm going to struggle my way out of here. And they do. And so God knew this about Israel. Like Geppetto, Israel was held in bondage, and they seem to have made peace with being in bondage. And why we know this is when Moses shows up and starts talking about freedom, they're like, Moses, <laughs> you know, we don't have a great thing here, but we have a thing here, and we don't want you to mess this up. They weren't willing to let Moses start building a fire to torch the place. And so God shows his power to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to Israel through the plagues and through the signs. And eventually, after, after the tenth plague, Israel walks out of evil. And like we know evil does, evil pursued them just like Monstro the well. And so Israel is in a pretty tight spot. They, they have Egypt behind them, and then they have the chaos of the seas in front of them. 
And their choice are, they can go back to a prison that they do know, or they can go into the seas that they don't know. And I want you to sit in the tension a little bit of Exodus 14, because this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. I, I, I love it when there's kind of two opposing forces, and you kind of have to figure out the, the, the tug and the pull between them. So in verse 11, sorry, in verse 12, um, they, things are going bad, and the Israelites, they speak to Moses, and they basically say, we told you we should have stayed back there. We should be in slavery still. It's safer there. You brought us here to die. And then Moses is going to answer them in 13. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so Moses is like, God's going to save you. Why do you want to go back to slavery? These Egyptians that are chasing you, you're never going to see them again. They're never going to be your master again. You need to be still. God will do it. Church, is that true? Amen, it's true. You better believe it's true. Every word of that is true. If Israel's bondage if it symbolizes what sin does to us, we can't save ourselves. God does it. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. Stand still. God fights for you. Completely true. And now I'm going to put you in some tension. Because now God is going to speak in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites, move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Are you a little uncomfortable in that tension? God does it. Stand still. He's going to fight for you. God shows up and says, move on. What I want to propose to you today is that God invites us to participate in our own rescue for His glory. Let's say that again. I want you to think about the thought that God invites us to participate in our own rescue for His glory. He says, I saved you from slavery, and now you get to walk out of it. And when you walk out, they walk into the chaos of the seas. In the Hebrew mind, the seas are a very scary place. And if you're a Hebrew, and you're walking through the Red Sea, like, can you see any structure that's holding the water back no not at all like i wonder if you could see the sea creatures what part of the sea life of the floor the plant life that they could see that they had never seen and how like going to a different world that this is and how chaotic that that would have been that god rescued them from slavery but they still have to walk through this chaos and not only are we saved in doing this, but we're transformed by doing this. Paul says that as the Israelites went through the Red Sea, that they were baptized. That's a transformation. That's a cleansing. Did God free them? Yes. But their participation in their own salvation brings glory to God, and it transforms them. And I hope you see that in the Pinocchio story as well, the transformation and so, Jordan Peterson is going to put a, a nice bow on this thought in his book, 12 Rules 
for life. He's going to say this. When the ice you're skating on is solid, that's order. When the bottom drops out and things fall apart and you plunge through the ice, that's chaos. Chaos is the deep ocean bottom to which Pinocchio voids to rescue his father from Monstro, well and fire-breathing dragon. That journey into darkness and rescue is the most difficult thing a puppet must do if he wants to be real, if he wants to extract himself from the temptations of deceit and acting and, and victimization and impulsive pleasure, if he wants to take his place as a genuine being in the world. The Israelites braved the seas. God led them. Not around the chaos, but through it. To their own salvation. God did it. They obeyed. They participated. Pinocchio becomes fully human when he's brave, when he's truthful, and when he's sacrificial, and when he unselfishly faces evil and chaos. The Jews look the Jews leaving Egypt and Pinocchio didn't earn their own rescue. They participated in it. Paul's going to tell us, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift from God, so that no man can boast. Our salvation is free. We get to participate in it. God doesn't save us from the prison of sin and from the chaos of life. He saves us in the prison of sin and in the chaos of life. And he says, move on. Walk through it. So what might this look like in the hands of Jesus? Well, to see that, I want to go to John 9. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's during the Festival of Booths. And so this is one of the three festivals every year that pilgrims from all around the region would go to the holy city. And so the city is crowded and it's at these times that Jesus shows up and kind of makes a stir. And in chapter 8, there's some people who get so angry at Jesus, they're picking up stones, and they're ready to kill him, and Jesus gets away. And he and the twelve are walking along, and they see a blind man. And one of the disciples says, okay, this guy's in a prison of blindness. Who committed the crime? He or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus does one of the strangest miracles that he does in the Gospels. He leans down into the ground, and he starts picking up some dirt. And then, and then he picks it up, and then, and then he starts to spit on the dirt. And I always just kind of thought of like a little, like, you know, just kind of a little spit. And then I'm like, I live in a very arid, dry climate. Jerusalem is pretty arid and pretty dry. So Jesus would have just mouth opened, just salivating onto this ball of earth. And then he starts forming it. Would have looked pretty strange. The twelve were just standing around watching. I mean, do you think they're thinking, hey, should I, should I help him? His mouth's getting a little dry. Do I need to spit on that too? I mean, it just would have looked weird. And the whole time Jesus is doing this, like, what's the blind guy doing? He can't see it. And so Jesus makes his patty, and he puts it on the guy's face. And then says, go to the pool of 
Shalom, which means sent, so he sent to the pool of scent and says, go and wash it off. Okay, that seems a little different, but kind of it's kind of reasonable. We understand water and ceremonial cleansing. But in Robert Galati's book, he describes the topography of Jerusalem. And the temple is up kind of on a high spot. Shalom is a half mile away, and it's downhill. So you've got a man who's been in the prison of blindness his literal entire life. He was born that way. And now Jesus sends him on a quest that would have been so chaotic. He's blind. He's a beggar. I don't know about you, but if I were a beggar, my strategy would be, let's go find a place where I can easily be seen but not be in the way. Because if I get in the way, that's going to give people an excuse to abuse me or at the very least to not help me financially. And so this man's whole life, I'm assuming he's figured out how to be noticeable but not in the way. I wonder what his clothes look like. Probably pretty ragged. I don't know, probably a lot of the pilgrims are wearing a lot nicer clothes. And so here's this blind man that Jesus says, go. And without an escort, he starts the half-mile trip that is on a fairly steep decline, going, going downhill, going against the flow of traffic. What do you think he'd look like? Tattered clothes, probably didn't smell that good, covered in saliva and mud, and he's staggering, he's tripping as he's going downhill, brushing up against people. His tattered clothes probably looked worse. He probably fell down a few times. Probably had blood on the palm of his hands when he fell to catch himself. His elbows, his knees. Probably looked terrible. He probably felt terrible like my whole life I've tried not to make a scene or not a big scene and not to be in the way. And now he's in everybody's way. Pushing against the chaos of all these crowds and he's walking downhill. Do you know what I think he probably looked like? A lot like Jesus is going to look about six months later. Is Jesus is covered in spit, clothes torn up, blood, falling down from carrying his own cross, leaving the temple, heading outside of the city. Everybody looked at him and said, he's cursed. That's probably what the blind man looked like. He probably prefigured what Jesus looked like. Battling this chaos. Was he already healed the whole time that he was in this chaos? I'll tell you it was. Jesus had already touched him. The power was already there. Jesus says, I, I'm just going to invite you to participate in your, own, in your own rescue. Guys, that would have been embarrassing. I don't know about you. I don't want you to see me spiritually clothed, dirty, smelly, spit on. I, I, don't, want you to, I don't want you to see me in my shame. And hundreds and probably thousands of people, they saw this guy staggering downhill, looking cursed, mud, spit, torn up clothes, blood, embarrassed. He probably hated it at the time. But then he gets to that water. And he bends down and he sticks his head in that water and he started washing the mud off. And can't you hear him? I can see! I can see! I can see! And then he heads back. And all those people that he bumped into that saw him looking cursed and spat upon him, he still looks kind of messy. But can you imagine the demeanor of his face and the story that that told? Guys, 
that chaos that he endured, man, that brings glory to God. That's powerful. There's something to that. He participated in his own rescue. God saved him, but he, in obedience, said, okay, I'm willing to endure the chaos as I walk out of my prison. And God gives him a sight. And then he gets there, and he sees Jesus. I want to say that again. He sees Jesus. The blind man sees Jesus for the first time because the whole time Jesus is making the mud patty. He doesn't see him. And then the blind man says, I believe. And he bows down and he worships. So maybe you're in a prison right now. Maybe you feel like you have no shalom. You have no completeness. That you have no light. And you feel like a puppet and not a person. Well, God is calling you out. What's your prison? Name it. He's already opened the doors and broken the chains. Walk out. You'll be walking out into the unknown. It's scary to leave even a prison that has been your home. What is your chaos? Just move on from the chaos. Don't stay in the Red Sea. He has something better for you. 2020 has felt like confinement and chaos for all of us. But I know about you, as a community and as a church family, I'm ready to move on from allowing chaos to live in my heart. So I just want to leave you with uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. And notice, he talks about passing through the waters, and he, and he talks about fire, and he talks about, about salvation. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the chaos and uncertainty of life, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. Today, if you feel like you're in a prison, or if you feel like you're in chaos, and if you need help moving through it, come as we stand and sing.